corrupted nerds ensconced in the twilight of their bedroom, whether it be in Paris, Singapore, Lagos, Bucharest, or indeed even Sydney. And from near Sydney, welcome to Corrupted Nerds Conversations, episode 11. Today, the future of the media with veteran columnist Bob Garfield. Now, remember when the media was a fantastic business to be in? I mean, that was the way things were for 300 plus years. It was great for the audience. They got free and subsidized content. It was great for advertisers because they got audience. And it was great for media because they got filthy, stinking rich. But thanks to the digital revolution, that's all changed. Unless you are in, uh, in gambling, uh, search or porn, there's just no money to be made. And I just don't see that happening. So are we facing a future where all the news is written by robots? There are some stories that have been written by robots for years, only they happen to <laughs> they be carbon-based, you know what I mean? This is Corrupted Nerds, a podcast about information, power, security, and all the cybers in a global internet revolution that's changing everything. Hi, I'm Stilgerian, back after another gap of three months thanks to lack of health, lack of working computer and lack of time once those things and paying work were taken into account. But here we are, and my guest is Bob Garfield, former advertising man, veteran journalist and columnist and co-presenter of the US National Public Radio program On The Media. If you're not listening to On The Media every week, you really are a burden to society. Uh, He also co-hosts a podcast on language at Slate called Lexicon Valley. Garfield was in Sydney recently to keynote the ADMA Global Forum. ADMA is the Association of Data-Driven Marketing and Advertising. Interestingly enough, it used to be the Australian Direct Marketing Association, that is, the junk mail people, but now it's data-driven marketing and advertising. Big data, everyone have a drink on me right now. And this is kind of where I need to make a confession. I really like Bob Garfield's work and I wanted to meet him. So I decided to cover the ADMA conference and then figure out later who I could sell stories to so the whole thing wasn't a financial disaster. Well, that's the joy of freelancing, that flexibility. The not joy part is, of course, never quite knowing whether you'll get paid this month or not. Even though Garfield was flat out, we did manage to find some time for a coffee and a chat, and this podcast is the result. As well as business models and robot news, we talk about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. He's not good with people. He's also not good with, uh, with following the logical uh, conclusions of his philosophy. Mm, we'll be uh, hearing more about that shortly. You'll also be hearing quite a few Corrupted Nerds podcasts in the next few weeks, and I'd like you to help make them possible. Uh, I'll tell you more about that later, but it's basically open your wallet and give me money. Uh, Garfield is worried about the future of the media. As he told the Adma Global Forum, there is no third way. There are no magic beans. We are fucked he said. And his advice to a younger journalist in, you know, around his 30 years old in the audience remains blunt. Garfield said, I can see my way clear. Uh, that's because, you know, he's now got, a, I suppose, a personal brand that carries through. But he told this journalist, but you, you're fucked. This interview was recorded on the 30th of July 2014 in Sydney, Australia. Enjoy. <laughs> 
Bob Garfield, as I said in the introduction, we are fucked, comprehensively fucked. How did we get fucked this badly? I don't really care to comment on that. Uh, just a little <laughs> joke I like to... Yeah. Why are we fucked? Because the economic model behind uh, almost all publishing and broadcast is in uh, a state of mid-collapse, and it has been for 15 years. And I, I'm tempted to say even longer, but then I started on the internet early. Yeah, well, you know, the digital revolution, certainly. I mean, mm. it depends on when you want to date uh, uh, the, the actual effects, but... Uh, I mean, you could argue that it goes back to the earliest days of, of digital technology, but uh, the, it really started having uh, an impact about 15 years ago, and it's uh, disintermediation and fragmentation, and uh, what has come of it that is destroying the industries that have been so availing for so many centuries is, the, uh, is a simple economics problem of supply and demand. We, because of the internet, we are awash in supply. There is a vast glut. There's an infinite amount of, of content, and therefore an infinite amount of advertising inventory, which, uh, which will depress prices always. And therefore, the, uh, not only do publishers and broadcasters have smaller audiences, but they can fetch less for the advertising. And a smaller number times a smaller number is an even smaller number, and that's why we're fucked. And on top of that, we've got the fact that we can now measure accurately just how fucked we are by seeing how few people actually do view or click through ads. Whereas in the days of the newspaper, you know, a newspaper could say, we've got a circulation of a quarter of a million. That means quarter of a million people are reading the real estate pages. But you go to any commuter railway station in the morning, well, no, they're filleting the paper. They're, you know, yes. I'm not buying a car or a house this week, so all that goes. Nor am I interested in finance, so all that goes. I've got the football results. But now we know. I mean, now it's essentially audited in real time and complicating matters. I mean, if, if all of the foregoing weren't bad enough, digital technology offer also offers us tools to avoid advertising actively. And, uh, you know, we know that the the click-through rate of banner ads is approaches zero. In effect, nobody ever penetrates a banner ad because why in the world would they? Why would you? Why would you leave what you're doing to go see, get more information about car financing? And we've even got the eye-tracking studies which show that we have now learned that anything that moves on the screen is probably an ad trying to attract our attention. So we will develop an instant yes, blind spot. We on literally the top right. don't see it, and we also use ad blocker uh, plus. And we, uh, we if we have DVRs, uh, we fast forward past the ads, uh, and uh, you know, so they're rendering the audience even smaller. So we've got <coughs> this plummeting mess of steaming something I, I can't think of the appropriate metaphor at the moment but with those prices going down, infinite content coming up isn't an answer that to succeed you have to decide to ignore all that to ignore the microsecond news cycle and just decide no we will serve these people with this stuff, we will be like a newspaper in that this is what people will look at for 20 minutes in the morning to get 
their orientation to the day or this is where they'll come for live sports results or, or whatever. Well, lots of people are doing exactly that. The only problem is the, you know, they're not getting any return on their investment of either labor or, or, or dollars. Uh, the, the media industry used to be obscenely profitable. Yes, it required gigantic capital to get in it. There were huge barriers to entry. But if you're a newspaper tycoon or a broadcaster, your, you know, your return is worth 40, 50 percent. And now the return is zero or less than zero. And that's why all of this content that is, we are all awash in, some of it just so phenomenally wonderful. Uh, words can scarcely express. It You're is talking underwritten. about Kim Kardashian news here, aren't you? I mean, we, we, the, the ultimate is the Kardashianification of the news cycle. But no, actually, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about uh, the other stuff that's on the internet that's so great that you share, that you marvel at. You go, I can't believe the genius behind this. But it's underwritten by either venture capitalists who mm. are who are uh, betting on the come that will never come, or uh, amateurs or monks. And or or perhaps the reserves, the financial reserves, the savings accounts of legacy media companies, because unless you are in uh, in gambling, uh, search or porn, there's just no money to be made. And I just don't see that happening. People talking about some magical solution that is just in the offing. uh, But, (laughs) you know, I, I, I don't see what it could possibly be that will defeat the the economic laws of supply and demand. And yet we see phenomenal valuations on internet companies so just, uh, such as Facebook and Twitter and so on. Now, you know, I'm not the best businessman in the world, but I know that if you multiply you know, revenue times stuff, you get a number which tells you how profitable you are. Yeah. And I see in the case of Twitter, for example, what's their valuation is up around the, you know, it's in the tens of billions, I think, now. Uh, but but really, is uh, uh, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal going to see his money back from his investment? Or you know, I don't know. These these internet phenomena have succeeded on the stock exchange by being extremely successful utilities. There is no you cannot argue that Twitter has not had a major influence on the world or Facebook. Mm. These well, are, you just look at the bottom of any television news program, there is the Twitter account yes. ready for you to interact. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it helps uh, It helps deliver news in real time and it helps uh, have your entire social circle and uh, see a picture of what you're having for lunch and everything in between, right? I mean, it's in the middle of revolutions and in the middle of the most banal conversation you could ever imagine. It is both. And it is, it's now an institution and um, I'm happy it's there, but it that because its reach is so large, people have assumed that their that revenue is going to follow, and it's been a relatively successful as an advertising channel with sponsored tweets. But you know, it's still not a profitable business, no, by and, any means. And, and Facebook has become profitable by uh, becoming an advertising channel. However, what it has done is reneged on almost all of its original promise, and uh, uh, especially to businesses. Uh, the, for years, uh, Facebook promised uh, a free way for brands to interact with, with their audiences and their fans and their likers. And now uh, those likes are worth nothing because in order to reach those people, you got to advertise on Facebook. You, the the, the uh, edge rank system has essentially meant that even if you have 
you know, 10 million fans and you're a brand, Coca-Cola or whatever, uh, and you post something that uh, only a f- tiny, tiny fraction of, of your community is ever going to see it. Well, I saw the figure from Facebook the other day when, they, when that research paper came out in the media that they had been doing essentially A-B testing on people's news feeds oh, yes, to uh-huh. skew their emotions and see whether they could. And funnily enough, they found that if you show people miserable things, they get miserable. Um, well, hey, that's the business model for BuzzFeed. Uh, don't knock it. <laughs> oh, and and I, I should say that I'm... I accept that, you know, all news is kind of a brand of entertainment anyway. The idea is to make you either feel good in your knowledge about the world or be horrified by it or or whatever. Or is, oh, okay. That's a little cynical. I mean, I know at least one person, me, who, who does sometimes feel good by the news and sometimes feel, does feel horrified and, you know, validating all my pre-existing uh, prejudices and, and ideology. But basically, I... I look at news to be informed, mm. to help understand the world around mm. me, to help keep an eye on the government and the police and the other institutions that affect my life and the lives of others all around the world. I actually feel like a citizen of the world, and I think uh, I think a functioning uh, news universe is a, a prerequisite for democracy and stable societies. And, you know, sure, we're, gonna, we're doing great on listicles and, and slideshows of kittens, uh, but nobody's covering the local school board. Nobody's covering the, the provincial environmental uh, protection offices. And uh, as for politicians, uh, the way we cover them is reprehensible. As Jay Rosen calls it, the horse race journalism of who's ahead on today's spin cycle. Correct, yeah. It's, it's sort the, of the one tour thing to spin. on earth uh, with which I agree with Jay Rosen. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> <laughs> Should we explore that theme or there's, should we move on? There's, there's, no, he's, he's my nemesis. He, uh, I mean, I don't... I don't he hates me for reasons that are not entirely clear to me and then misses almost no opportunity to say so. But he's a pretty smart commentator. Uh, you know, that isn't actually the only thing I agree with him on. I've, I've been a, uh, a reader of his uh, Press Think blog for many years and uh, I think he's a, one of the sharper minds mm. out there. Mm. The he fact that he loathes me yeah. is, uh, you know, that's kind of almost <laughs> irrelevant. <laughs> well, given that, uh, look, I'm actually kind of on your side about I want the news to help me understand the world around me, not titillate me or shock me or whatever it might be. Now, sure, I might be titillated or shocked as an outcome of yeah. learning about what's happening in my world. Um, there's this strange dichotomy, isn't there, that, that the internet has at once created the opportunity to be more informed about our world than ever before. Yes, it has done that. And yet, how do we then do that? Because, as you say, the economics don't stack up. Right. The incentive for content creators on the internet is not to do great, robust, uh, significant journalism. The and this has always been true, the incentive is to get readership to um, to make advertisers happy and to do so by any means necessary. And if that includes Kardashian cleavage, you know, so be it. Um, and you know, there's way more fluff than there is substance. Uh, but, you know, there is a lot of substance. What there isn't, what is missing in the new ecosystem is the level of truly robust daily journalism. 
uh, the internet has given us crowdsourcing projects, journalistic pre- crowdsourcing projects that no news organization could have accomplished in the in the the richest of the rich old days. They have given us investigative reporting uh, in in great depth and uh, great impact. Uh, sometimes by existing news organizations, sometimes by organizations like ProPublica, which is essentially a, a donor model, but. On a local basis, almost every newspaper in the United States, on the way to almost every newspaper in the world, has been gutted. Gutted of talent, resources, institutional memory, uh, experience, and, uh, and the, the, you know, the effects are obvious every time you pick up a newspaper or that little brochure that used to be a newspaper but now looks like uh, a flyer from the local department store. So where do organizations like WikiLeaks fit into that spectrum? Are they a, are they a one-off? Uh... Well, WikiLeaks has had a profound, in its brief history, has had a profound impact on uh, global politics, domestic politics, information, understanding, and uh, much of it for the good, but it was founded by a guy who I think is a sociopath, uh, who uh, is, is I think it's to, fair to say he's not good with people at the very more, least. He's not good with people. He's also not good with uh, with following the logical uh, conclusions of his philosophy. Uh, because if you do, and he has been quite open about this in his in his Julian Assange-ish way, uh, he doesn't understand that all information is not uh, should not be available to everybody. And, you know, it doesn't take but a second to realize the consequences if, uh, you know, if everybody knew how to, uh, you know, let's just say a homebrew curare, right? Or wor- worse than curare, some, um, some poison that, could, uh, that you could kill your entire community with. No, those are secrets for a reason. Diplomatic secrets are secrets for a reason. Uh, now, we know that governments tend to to uh, uh, obsessively overclassify information that the public does have the right to know and should have the right to know, uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't information that the public <laughs> mm. is best not knowing, and that includes negotiations uh, between states that could have very, very serious ramifications if they were public. And he just, I mean, he does get it, but he is uh, so um, narcissistic. And, and I would say messianic, that uh, he has not thought of the, the obvious logical consequences of his philosophy. And uh, you know, he's made himself a kind of cult leader mm. and with all that goes with it. The word disruption came into my mind as we were talking about WikiLeaks. Now, it's one of my hated words there because... Well, I was labelled as disruptive as a child, and that meant I sat up the back of the room where I would not be disrupting. <laughs> which, uh, You're pretty disruptive as an adult as well, <laughs> in my understanding. Well, there is that. Uh, you know, a leopard can't change its spots, I suppose. <laughs> but I sometimes think, and maybe WikiLeaks is an example of this in the specific case of how Assange has implemented WikiLeaks, that, OK, we acknowledge there is a revolution in a revolution, some things get broken. This is a thing, therefore we're going to break it yeah. kind of logic. And we see that uh, in Silicon Valley's approach to the media or uh, 
uh, or to anything else. Uh, it's almost the uberfication of society where yeah, we can we can see how to, to smash that up and make some more money for us, but there's okay, not a lot so, of thought Yes, out. I understand. And, but, you know, there, there's two ideas here that seem identical, but they're not identical. Yes, in a revolution, things change, by, mm. obviously, by definition. Mm. It's disruptive. It's destructive. Exactly. Some things will not be yes. there after the revolution. Yes, and it was true of the Industrial Revolution, and history is repeating itself now. I mean, with, with the, <laughs> the Industrial Revolution... Uh, uh, bespoke uh, 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 businesses were rendered irrelevant. Cobblers lost their livelihood because there was steam-operated shoe plants down the road. And and uh, now in this world, I'm a cobbler, and I'm I'm losing my livelihood to the digital revolution. But the fact that revolution brings disruption and change, and sometimes blood in the streets, uh, doesn't mean that it. Um, that it does not mean you must uh, destroy. It, it is not a license to destroy. The destruction is a consequence of technological change and kind of the evolution of society. But uh, what the, the mistake that uh, Assange has made it is he thinks that revolution uh, gives him permission to, to destroy all existing structures, but with no benefit. On the, or marginal benefit compared to the uh, unnecessary destruction that he causes. So uh, what happens t- through the natural course of, of a revolution is one thing. The idea of just going in and, and, and breaking things for its own sake is another, and that's what he doesn't seem to grasp, or does, and doesn't care. Uh, you, you spoke about yourself as a cobbler there, and I, I have the image of, of uh, craftspeople manually making news with with brass and wooden tools, which it is exactly how we did it for three hundred years. Yeah, in a certain kind of media factory, and we yes. all of the employee journalists learned how to make particular kind of media widgets in a particular kind of factory, whether that's three hundred word newspaper news story or a 90 second TV news spot or whatever it might be so how do you see some of the things coming into that like robots writing the news there are some stories that have been written by robots for years only they happen to, <laughs> they haven't been carbon based you know what I mean uh, you know uh-huh. obituaries is yeah, not everything is a Pulitzer Prize no, winning investigative feature yeah uh, you know you plug in a lot of it has just been plug in the, the the blanks. There's a certain structure for how you write an obituary. There's a certain structure for how you write an earnings report from a business. There's a certain structure for how you write, write the outcome of a um, of a, a baseball game. And it's a template, and you just, you know, you take the, the uh, particulars and plug them in, and other than that, there's, there's no great... Uh, technique involved. Exactly. That's what narrative science is doing. You know, here's the score of the match. Is it, is the narrative template, the hometown team started slow and was, had a disappointing first half, but thanks to goals by Smith and Jones in the (laughs) second half, they, you know, roared ahead to win 15-10. Now, you know, you could make an argument, which will be entertaining but not correct, that that's the way we cover politics too, right? We just we take the latest. <laughs> I wasn't going to quite say that, but all right, you said that. I'll, yeah, it, you take the latest incendiary remark by politician A, and you take the 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 the, uh, the twisting of that and 
counter incendiary remark of politician B, and you put well, them. Well, yeah, in- yeah, yeah. We 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 had that actually when I produced daytime talk radio for the ABC in Adelaide. We we actually said, here are these standby talk poli- topics. If if we have a slow news day, yeah. it is. Um, you know, has Israel gone too far this time? Is that our, you know? Do our abortion laws need changing? Prostitution should it be allowed near our schools? You know, I mean, yeah, yeah it's sad. I mean, if people in the uh, dining room knew what went on in the kitchen, they wouldn't eat in the restaurant. But yeah. uh, so you know, if you if you wanted to be uh, dramatic, you could say that yes, narrative science soon will be covering the uh, you know Republican. Uh, race for the nomination for the next you know the next presidential nomination and can do it as well as our political reporting class but of course they can't Mm. and uh so you know i'm not too worried about the kind of job displacement that will come of the next general electric earnings report being being written by a, uh, an algorithm, I, I don't mm. care. But if we uh, stretch the factory uh, metaphor a bit more, you know, an old-style car factory production line had individual guys with wrenches and welders and things making the car themselves. Now the production line is largely automated. There are robots, and you have a smaller number of people supervising the action of the robots, choreographing it, if you will. Um, and so some sort of semi-automated process has the thing. I mean, say what the LA Times does with um, earthquake reports. The first cut, they yep. reformat a report from the US Geological Survey. Uh, there is a field labelled duty geologist's comments, so they stick quote marks around it, comma, said, insert name, comma, duty geologist. Then that pops up in front of a, a sub, a copy editor, as you would say, and uh, you know, turn it into something a little bit more interesting. That would perhaps increase the volume of that workaday stuff. Well, it would increase the efficiency and lower the cost of the news organization, yeah. for sure. You know, but once again, the more I think about it, the more I realize that narrative science could produce the f- 24 hours of Fox News Channel and nobody would know the difference. <laughs> Those Japanese robots are getting very good and lifelike, aren't they? And I, I see that. I, I do each time I visit the state. So I sit down one evening with a couple of bottles of wine and turn on Fox. Uh-huh. Really? Just to, yeah, just to... Are you a cutter, too? <laughs> <laughs> Paywalls. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a that's a segue. We uh, have they been working? I mean, what's the the view in the US is kind of a few years ahead of Australia in these things. And I've got to recognise it's a very different market. I mean, uh, yeah. the country's got a much bigger population and so on. Um, has anyone got that kind of thing working? Are they finding the balance? No. I mean, I, you know, I think if there's anything that can save. Uh, robust journalism it's subscription model right and mm-hmm. uh, oh, and and by the way almost all other forms of media including uh, television and uh, and movies um, and the New York Times has said that it now generates more from its payroll from subscriber revenue uh, online than it does from advertising well, that doesn't surprise me because the, well, you know, the advertising revenue was digital pennies replacing uh, uh, analog dollars. So, no surprise there at all. So, uh, you know, if you're willing to lose some reach, and um, you're willing to understand that you will never achieve the kind of margins that you once had, 
you can make some money using paywalls as you slowly, gradually train the audience that content isn't free. And uh, but I just don't. Nobody is making the kind of money via subscription, through, via paywalls, that will underwrite a robust news organization. I keep using that term, you know, robust. Mm. But what I'm talking about is what we used to have, which was a well, uh, well-stocked newsroom filled with experienced professionals who know how to apply their their craft and who could be allocated to do a specific thing for a couple of weeks you know to investigate thing not everyone obviously most of them right. are doing the day-to-day stuff but you know a few of the the more experienced hands could be allocated to something like that there'd be resources to pay a lawyer when they got themselves in trouble etc etc all of the above not to mention all of the very expensive physical infrastructure uh, that goes with what uh, pr- producing uh, a, a newspaper or a broadcast station. Uh, we, we are having this conversation at ADMA in Sydney. Uh, one of the speakers uh, at this conference was uh, an editor from Fast Company, Jeffrey mm. Chu, who was a fantastic presenter and extremely in- inspiring. And he, you know, he told, he said something, told uh, about some coverage they did where he detached a reporter, one of his reporters, for something like nine months to work on a very particular story that would, you know, never reach a million people. And uh, describing something that was routine in the old days, but kind of made me gasp because no news organization can afford to do that now, including Fast Company, which is not profitable. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. have, they have a billionaire. Neither is The Guardian, neither is The Australian here in Australia, neither presumably is Al Jazeera, neither is the BBC or... No, it's really helpful if you want to start a news organization to have the emir of yeah. Qatar yeah. To, uh, to underwrite it because the, uh, the marketplace is not going to, to come to your rescue. Mm. Related to the subscription model, you've got... I hate the term crowdfunding because, in a way, it's just another way of structuring your subscription model. You're just making the subscriptions non-compulsory, and it's what public radio in the US, uh, community radio, it's called here in Australia, has been doing since day one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, does that work? I've experimented a little bit with it myself. Sure it works. There, there, I've, I've got people paying for my time to have this conversation with you now on exactly this model, but. I am not intending to build a vast media empire. I'm just paying the bills and having an occasional, you know, meal out <laughs> at other people's expense yeah. at a conference. Of course. <laughs> I hope it's a modest meal. Look, uh, yeah, it works, and it's worked for certain institutions like my own, public radio in the States, uh, forever. Uh, the problem is there is a finite amount of noblesse oblige in the world. And now that more and more news organizations in the states, there's the Texas Tribune, there's, I mentioned ProPublica, uh, they are all using this donor model, their corporate and foundation funding plus individuals and or, or uh, a Kickstarter or whatever. You know, there's, but there's a finite amount of, of money that people are willing to donate to for the, for the sake of uh, a, a, a healthy media. And now... <laughs> There's just competition for it. And it's going to be pretty cutthroat. And it's not going to grow by... Uh, maybe it will grow by 100%. But if the amount of money that in t- the year 2000 funded all public media, including NPR, were to double by 2020, 
that would be a drop in the bucket compared to the, the costs of operating every news organization in the United States. I mean, it just would, it, it would scarcely be noticed. And all of these, these models that have emerged, whether it's paywalls or crowdfunding or these, these new advertising buys like native advertising, the, some of them are, are positive, the donor model. Some of them are uh, offensive, like native advertising. But none of them is anything more than incremental. None of them replaces the vast economy that, that uh, took care of everybody in the most beautiful symbiosis ever of mass media and mass marketing. I mean, that was the way things were for 300-plus years. It was great for the audience. They got free and subsidized content. It was great for advertisers because they got audience. And it was great for media because they got filthy, stinking rich. And uh, it was just, you know, as close to flawless. And we thought it was. We we thought it was a birthright. You know, we thought it was like a Newtonian law that was... inexorable and uh, I should say immutable uh, and a given but it turns out no it was just an accident of history and that moment in history is past. I don't think that everyone involved is actually realising that part because a lot of the language being used by uh, supporters of news organisations that are laying off 20% of their journalists or closing down two weekday editions or whatever speak of newspapers in particular as a fundamental bedrock of society that was, is, and always shall be here. Well, you know, it, <laughs> they were right up, right up until the always shall be. I mean, they're indispensable. There's no question about that. They are indispensable. We need a healthy, robust press. But, you know, we need penicillin, too. We do. We need, we need antibiotics. But if something were to happen that they would be unavailable they don't you know you don't mind them someone has to make them and if the economy for penicillin were to or antibiotics would just simply disappear and by the way uh, it is yeah. kind of disappearing yeah. uh, we are going to be lacking something that we desperately need and there is a difference between something that we need and something that uh, uh, is is a given and uh, there there is just there is nothing immutable about a, a healthy press. Now, this is a, obviously a wonderfully depressing view. I mean, we're smiling as we say this, but uh, it, it's, it, it's not pointing towards a happy outcome. So perhaps uh, to wrap up on a more positive note, what signs do you see of something new and healthy emerging? Who should we be looking at? You know, there are certain glimmers of hope. And, uh, you know, maybe five years ago I wouldn't have said this. But I want you to think for a moment of BuzzFeed and the Washington Post. Now, the Washington Post was just sold for pennies to Jeff Bezos, the Amazon dragillionaire. And um, it, you know, was not profitable. It was like every other news organization had been gutted editorially and... um, and simply was not closed foreign bureaus, laid off staff, bought out staff, and because of the, uh, the and the and the Graham family that owned it was essentially donating from their own assets to keep this magnificent institution alive. 
it finally became unaffordable for them. They sold it to Bezos, who bought it for about a dollar and a half. And, uh, and it had to change. And clearly, if it was going to exist, either Jeff Bezos was going to you know, pay out of, just subsidize it forever, which he could do. You know, he could shake out the sofa cushions and absorb the $200 million a year losses that the Grams were suffering. But, uh, you know, I think they have different plans. I think they plan to try to use digital technology and the learnings of other organizations to, to find a path for the post. Then there's BuzzFeed, which people think is just the most cynical... A fluffy, insubstantial uh, uh, infotainment that's out there, but profitable because they figured out a way uh, with their superficial kind of entertainment to to, to do uh, advertising for brands that looks exactly like their content and vice versa. You know, they figured out a way to do it, and because the stakes are so low, nobody really cares that they're looking at an ad instead of a. Uh, instead of some sort of organic editorial material. So they, they have solved that little problem in their particular uh, space. But BuzzFeed now has a Washington bureau, and it does international coverage. It covers war. Oh, yeah, the downing of Malaysian MH17 in the Ukraine of the half a dozen first journalists on the scene. BuzzFeed was one of them. Yeah. So, are they presum- presumptuous to think that they can take over uh, a responsibility that we used that was traditionally ceded to large news organizations? Well, those, maybe those large news organizations funded their journalism with dross. I mean, I've got a used car for sale. You know, the, the classified ads. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's just grubby commerce. You know, yeah, but they and the turned York, it into you know, news. And then the New York Times has you know has stuff that is there not there because it's going to improve you as a person, but just because it's entertaining. It's just a question of the balance. I mean, you know, on one end of the scale is the Daily Mail, on the other end of the scale is the Guardian or the New York Times, and but they all share some uh, some attributes. Anyway, well, sharing attributes is exactly where I'm going with this. BuzzFeed is becoming a little bit more like the Washington Post. It chooses its shots, but it does some significant political coverage and spot news coverage. And the Washington Post, equally, is becoming more like BuzzFeed. It's doing. It's the most popular piece, the most uh, viewed piece of content it's ever had online, and it was an early player in online journalism, it was a listicle from the Sochi Olympics of all the shoddy hotel rooms. And, um, you know, they have all these vertical blogs with not especially experienced journalists running them, and they have... Uh, overnight news desk so that they can have so they can reduce the zero the the news cycle to instantaneous and they're doing all sorts of things borrowed from the legs of BuzzFeed and what's happening is they're moving towards one another to some sort of middle and I my guess is my look I don't even know if it's a guess it's a hope my hope is that somehow the the two sensibilities will move together to some sort of reasonable middle ground where the the profitability attendant to the fluff subsidizes the kind of seriousness that that you need to cover institutions like government and we somehow get to the best of both worlds uh, i'm not exactly optimistic i'm not pollyanna but i can see that it'll, it'll sustain a news industry in a much 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 less profitable way 
for at least the rest of my life. And, and after that, I don't give a shit because I'm dead. I was about to say, I hope your hope is right. You ruined it with that last line, Bob Garfield. In any event, I will thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's been mine. That's Bob Garfield, journalist, columnist, co-presenter of On The Media, our guest on episode 11 of Corrupted Nerds Conversations. Episode notes and links are at CorruptedNerds.com. If you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to the podcast either at iTunes or SoundCloud or by RSS in your choice of software. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can leave a tip at skank.com.au slash tip. And in the next few days, you'll also be able to subscribe financially. I'm Stilgerian. See you next time.